Hi, Bestie. How are you? I am okay. You know when you're so busy that you don't even really have time to feel stressed because you don't have time to feel anything because you just need to keep going to get stuff done? That's kind of how my week is. Oof. I'm sure that's a really normal feeling that all normal, well-adjusted people feel all the time. (laughs) But you have caramel. Yes, I do. I have wonderful caramel that I ate some of for breakfast because you got it for me. And I just had a feeling that I should check the mail. And so I did at 7.45 and I helped myself to a chai flavored goat milk caramel while I was drinking chai. And then I also ate a slice of the birthday cake that you made me. So I just had, oh, and the chai also that you got me for my birthday. So this was entirely sponsored by Rin breakfast made out of birthday presents. It was great. It's because I'm great and adorable and so much fun. Yes, you are. Glad to hear you saying those things about yourself. (sighs) Gotcha. (laughs) So Sammy, how are you feeling after, after these two chapters? Hmm. I honestly, this is maybe not the response you're expecting, kind of a little underwhelmed because these especially the second one has a lot of moments that I'm familiar with just again being a person in culture in the world that if you kind of know about Lord of the Rings maybe there's some lines that are very famous and I kind of thought they would be a bigger deal I kind of thought especially the second one would be a much longer chapter but they are pretty concise So I think they will become more impressive and their significance will sink in as we talk about them. But on first pass, I feel like I was not as moved as I felt like I should be. It's much like my week. Stuff is happening very quickly and I'm just not processing it. Fair enough. I, I think these are two really fantastic chapters. We've got, you know, a whole range of things from our a reference to our previous to the prequel story we have uh magic we have our first party death and we have tentacle porn so you know (laughs) we really run the full gamut here i would beg to differ on the nature of the tentacles but we'll get there when we get there Yeah, so I guess do we want to get started? Hell yeah, let's do it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Phantom Apprentice, where I, Rin, a lifelong Tolkien fan, get to talk about it with uh, my best friend and close personal queer bestie, uh, <laughs> Sam. Hello. That That's a new one of ways we've described our relationship. That's That's a new arrangement of words. Good job. I did just refer to you as my best friend and then also close personal queer bestie. Yeah, really specifying that it's close and personal, as opposed to... And queer. Yes. Queer platonic, in fact. Indeed. I did not write down the names of these chapters. 
What's well, the first one? We'll I just I have them listed that. as 16 and 17. Well, so as we make our way through Lord of the Rings together, um, myself for the first time in a little while and Sam for the first time ever, we are currently in book two of Fellowship of the Ring on the chapters, um, starting on chapter four and reading chapters four and five, Journey in the Dark and The Bridge of Casa Doom. Also at the time of recording, um, we're about to start like releasing episodes next week. Yeah, very soon. We have put things out to our beta listeners. So they have had mostly mixed things. We'll have some little technical tweaks that we'll do, but people other than us have listened to finished episodes now, which is exciting and terrifying. So we'll just get to have that new emotional roller coaster. Yeah. And the next time that we record after this, we'll like this podcast will be out in the world. Mm -hmm. Not this episode. This episode probably won't come out for a, a minute but yeah it'll probably it could very well be 2024 by the time this episode comes out but to us time is different time is a big ball of wibbly wobbly timey wimey stuff <laughs> um and that's a reference that i haven't made since high school i i don't think you were a doctor who kid were you i wasn't i was an incredibly big Doctor Who kid. How have we not talked about this? Because I was also a huge Doctor Who kid. I know that's not the queer media, not the queer media, fuck, the nerd media that we're here to talk about. But oh, we can, we can discuss the queerness of Doctor Who at another time because there was definitely some queer shit going on there. Maybe we can make that a bonus episode. I mean, there's Jack Harkness. I named a fish after him that I had as a child. <laughs> um, We've talked about the Harkness rule on this show before. True, 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 true. But I guess other than him, there is there is one episode. I think it's in one of the seasons with the ninth Doctor, the one where the people are trapped in these cars that are perpetually flying around in circles underground, and they think that they're going to escape, but they're really not, and there's the face of Bo is involved. There's some lesbians in that. and There's uh, the lizard woman cool. from the dawn of time and her wife. Oh, true, true, true. Yes. Yes. Okay, so yeah, so there's a couple, but and that's not what we're here to talk about. This is just a personal revelation that I didn't realize you were ever into Doctor Who. I was too. Um, Christopher Eccleston, Eccleston, I don't know how you say his last name, looks exactly like my dad, which was very disorienting, which specifically he looked exactly like my dad at the time that I was watching those episodes, which was many, many, many years ago. So my dad has aged and looks different now. But at the time, I would stop the TV and make my dad stand next to the screen and make all my siblings come and look. I did that with my uncle uh, and um, one of the characters in The Big Bang Theory. Oh, my God. Wait, when I literally... Watching? You watched The Big Bang Theory? My family did. I'm learning so much about you today. But I did, I did have to stop it at one point, I think, when my uncle was over um, and, like, be like, okay, stand next to the television right there. Um, and then I turned to his partner and was like, back me up here. Yeah. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, I see it. 
Anyway, we'll get back to uh, a journey in the dark. Do you have anything else before we get started? Nah, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to hit it. So last time they were digging in the snow and Legolas was frolling away on his special little elf boy feet. And basically everything sucks and it's terrible and they're all having a really bad time. And the company has to decide whether they're just going to go back to Rivendell at this point, if it's even worth it to continue on or if they should press on. And surprise, surprise, they decide that they're going to go into the mines because obviously that's the only option available to them. And we're thinking maybe we'll find the dwarves in there. That was something I was curious to see, like what the inside was like, because in The Hobbit, the descriptions of the inside of what was the fucking name of the mountain? I feel so stupid right now. Erebor. Yeah. The inside of Erebor when it was all cool and smog had his horde in there. That was a very majestic setting. And I felt like we really got a good sense of the space. And so I was excited for some more underground adventures. Yeah. I didn't think we got quite as good a sense of this underground space. Um, But Tolkien likes underground spaces and this will not be the last one that we see. Um, And this is not even the first underground space that we've had in this book. No. Um, Because we had the Barrow Downs as well. Yeah. Yeah. So they they have their, you know, tradition of a D&D party bickering over plans during a long rest, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the pl- those plans basically take the form of, well, we can't go over it. We can't go around it. We have to go under it. <laughs> I want to talk about orcs. Before we talk about orcs, I mean, is this in chronological order or is this just an order of vibes and things that stuck out to us? Because the orcs Um, don't show up for a hot minute. No, but they do talk about them. Um, Where they're talking about, you know, whether or not there's orcs down in in the mines. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is sort of the first time in this book, like we've mentioned orcs before, orcs and goblins. But we're going to see a whole lot more of them later. So I want to talk about them and sort of where they come from and where the name comes from specifically. Sure. Yeah. Right. Orcs are an invention of Tolkien in a lot of ways. And then in other ways they're, they're not because like he uses the term pretty much interchangeably with goblin, especially Mm -hmm. in the Hobbit he might use the word orc in the Hobbit like once, but otherwise it's pretty much exclusively, uh, he's exclusively in the Hobbit refers to them as goblins. And, um, it said that his inspiration for goblins and like how he describes them comes from the 1872 novel, uh, by George MacDonald, the princess and the goblin. Okay. Um, which I don't know a whole lot about, but there's, um, it's about goblins who live in mines um, and end up kidnapping a princess. And there's a a whole story of, that goes on from there. 
but Tolkien Tolkien takes his description of uh, goblins and orcs from that largely, right? Mm-hmm. But the word orc comes from uh, an old English word, which we know Tolkien was a speaker of old English. Mm-hmm. Um, from uh, Orkneys, which is used once in a line of Beowulf to mean ogre or evil spirit, right? And Tolkien was, as we've mentioned before, England's foremost Beowulf scholar. Yeah. It also potentially, and Tolkien said this as as much, um, could be related both in that form as Orkneas and and just as Orc to the word Orcus, which is a Latin name for an Etruscan and Roman uh, underworld god and a god of oaths. Hmm. Like I said, he he uses the term orc pretty much interchangeably with goblin for like the rest of this story. But we're going to start seeing him use orc much more exclusively later on because it seems that he describes orcs as a quote unquote larger form of goblin. And goblin seems to be a specific name for orcs in the Misty Mountains. And as we're about to go out of the Misty Mountains, we're not going to see that term as much. Interesting. Because I always think of them as being very distinct. So I guess it hadn't occurred to me that they were basically the same creature. There's a couple of different origins in the world itself. Um, We can discuss that now or at another time for where the orcs come from within Middle Earth. I want to save that. I want to save that until it becomes maybe a little more relevant to the story. Fair enough. I think we can probably talk about that probably at some point in the two towers then. Um, But they are more or less wholly evil and the reader's meant to think of them as such. They're the cannon fodder that the reader is not meant to feel sympathetic about. Which of course just makes me want to examine everything about them and think of what their culture is like and why they're doing the things that they're doing. And Oh, and we fully can and should on this podcast. That's the point. Yeah, I want to. Because when we were reading The Hobbit, we talked about that a lot with the different creatures all sort of who were meant to not feel bad about them killing. But when you think about the standards that those other creatures are operating on, the party is constantly breaking into their strongholds and stealing their stuff and killing their people and doing things that from their perspective, they shouldn't be doing. So it's all kind of relative. There's a lot of culture clash going on in The Hobbit. Yeah. And we're not really getting a whole lot of orc culture in these chapters, but it is something that I will be thinking about. I don't know if I'll become a full orc apologist, but I'm I'm open to them being complex. And because I'm used to D&D where orcs can be lovely friends who we enjoy. Yes. In many ways. Where where all of our where all of our orcs just have big arms so they can hug their friends. <laughs> exactly. I was thinking in many ways, like what what ways are you talking about there, Catherine? I'm literally writing a whole arc for our D D campaign, a whole mini arc for our D D campaign right now involving a wedding between two NPCs in our in our hometown, um, one of whom is an orc. True. Is she a full orc? I thought she was a half orc. She's a half orc. But anyway, I'm we're off topic. Kind of getting back into 
the plot in the order of things. So one of the things that I noticed at the beginning of the chapter is that Aragorn seems worried about Gandalf specifically going into the mines. And his reasoning for that isn't really unpacked, but they're kind of talking about, you know, in the beginning what they should do, can't go under it, can't go over it, got to go through it. And then he says, um, Gandalf is saying, basically, we we got to do it. Are you guys going to follow me? Yes, we'll follow you. And then we get, I will, said Aragorn heavily. You followed my lead almost to disaster in the snow and have said no word of blame. I will follow your lead now if this last warning does not move you. It is not of the ring, nor of us others that I am thinking now, but of you, Gandalf. And I say to you, if you pass the doors of Moria, beware. And I don't, I mean, now that I have read these chapters, I see a little bit of foreshadowing there, but I can't think of a reason why he would be worried for Gandalf specifically and make a point of saying that. I mean, Gandalf talks about his previous delve into Moria being kind of a dark, a dark experience. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't seem like a good reason for Aragorn to be worried for him. I mean, you know, anything that's big enough deal to upset Gandalf is probably a big deal, but everything that's happening is a big deal. This is a very dangerous quest and they're just at the beginning of it. Yeah, I guess Moria seems to have like a reputation of essentially being the downfall of civilizations or like being Moria has a reputation of being like a tale of warning in its own right, right? We've now heard multiple stories, like as we finish these chapters, we've now heard multiple accounts of the dwarves attempting to settle in Moria and fucking up. Mm -hmm. And granted, the dwarves kind of did that at Erebor too, where they got too greedy and brought a dragon down on their heads. And in this case, they dug too deep and awoke Durin's bane. But it's called Durin's bane because it killed Durin. So this goes back to the very beginning of the dwarves, right? And so I don't think Aragorn necessarily knew that Durin's bane was a Balrog, but he knew that, you know, the history of Moria is one of making assumptions and then immediately having those assumptions kill you. That makes sense. Because I'm thinking about this pattern of the dwarves settling in places and fucking up and wondering if that comes across more as something we're supposed to interpret as an inherent moral failing of dwarves an inherent fatal flaw that dwarves have that they just go to these fucked up places or if the issue is the places themselves it's kind of unclear but I think I might just also be failing to grasp the bigger implications of this setting and that Aragorn clearly understands but I still don't know why he would be worried about Gandalf specifically more so than everyone else in the party that's what I'm really hung up on and you know we get to foreshadowing reasons why later 
but that that moment just didn't hold up to me. I felt like it was setting up for some other specific knowledge that I don't feel like the chapter delivered. And maybe I'll change my mind. Maybe we'll talk about it. And by the end of the episode, I will feel like it was explained in a satisfactory way. But I really hung on to that. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't necessarily know if I have a better explanation for it other than Moria, the name of Moria being dark. Mm -hmm. And that might just be it. I think that I'm a little too used to the moral grayness and ethical complexity of things because we are bored of and rightly cautious of black and white thinking like that in contemporary fantasy most of the time. So I might just have to accept Moria is bad and he is worried that they will go in there, but my my brain doesn't like that. But we'll move on. Fair enough. I have one line written down here, which is the wolf that one hears is worse than the orc that one fears, which I kind of like as a as a nice little offhand. You can be afraid of some possible thing, but if you know that there's something out there that's much worse, the uh, the possible thing is is just a possibility. You might might as well go with that one. I don't feel like I understand that. They're afraid of the possibility of orcs, right? Mm-hmm. But they're not certain that orcs will be there. Okay. But they are certain that wolves are there. And eventually the wolves will catch up to them and eat them. Okay, got it. So the wolves are outside, the orcs are inside. We're not going to stay where the definite danger is. We'll go where the danger might be. Okay, that makes sense. Yes. But then, of course, then they go, then they have the the next line, which is, um, but where the warg howls, there also the orc prowls. Mm, so true. Boromir is very pleasant this whole time. Every time he speaks, it's to complain. I feel like I didn't even pick up on that because these are really Gandalf-centric chapters, so I was mostly paying attention to the things that he did. But, I mean, it seems like Boromir has valid things to complain about. This is fair, but he is... I feel like Boromir is so used to being a prince Mm -hmm. where everyone listens to him and everyone follows his ideas and his orders and now he's in a party full of people who are also hyper competent and also all royalty mm, interesting like aragorn's royalty legolas's royalty three of the four hobbits are the equivalent of hobbit nobility mm-hmm. gimli is definitely a noble a noble's son and gandalf is fucking gandalf so he's all of a sudden not out of place yeah he is not the most high-ranking most competent person in the room anymore and so i feel like he's not taking this as well as others Mm -hmm. because the rest of these people are used to working in this sort of caliber of group or not the hobbits necessarily but the hobbits are already out of their depth so this all just continues to make sense to them And the hobbits at least know how to be a team player. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think Boromir also is recovering from 100 days in the wilderness on his own. 
Yeah, that's going to take a toll on you to go from total isolation to then being in this group of people who I don't know if we really know anything about his pre-existing. I don't think he has pre-existing relationships with most of them. None of them. None of them. Yeah. So this is a bunch of strangers who are suddenly not hanging on his every word. That's got to be a weird emotional whiplash. Yeah. I think he like is aware of Gandalf because everyone's aware of Gandalf. Mm -hmm. And in Gandalf's story in the Council of Elrond chapter, Gandalf does talk about going um, to Minas Tirith and to see Denethor, who's Boromir's father um, and who keeps a great library. But anyway, they have, you know, a couple of fights with the wolves, and then eventually they do come to the gate. Ooh, I forgot one little line. Yes. Remember how we're paying attention to the tookishness of Peregrine Took specifically? We are indeed, yes. He explicitly says here, there is not enough of the breed of Brandabas the bull roarer in me. These howls freeze my blood. I don't ever remember feeling so wretched. So he is, he does not have a lot of the Tookish adventurousness in him, despite being a Took. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that continues to play out and how he grows as an adventurer. Yeah. Yeah, the only real Pippin things that I highlighted were just that he continues to be a shitty teen. He's given Gandalf a hard time with the door later, but we haven't gotten to the door yet. The door, we'll get to the door. They scout out the the lake. I want to know who damned the Cyrenon. Like, why is there now a lake rather than the Cyrenon being the river, right? Because mm-hmm. it talks about how there was it got dammed up, right? And I don't think it's a natural dam. Yeah. Somebody dammed up the Cyrenon, and it's never really explored who. And what do you gain from that? Right. I mean, I think they mentioned later on that when the orcs came for the dwarvish settlers, they couldn't get out through that, through the uh, western gate, mm-hmm. because the damned Cyrenon had risen the water level above the gate itself, and the watcher in the water was there. Okay, that makes sense. So it... But now the water's fallen low enough that they can get through the door on this side. Mm-hmm. They talk about as they're coming up, um, they have the foreshadowing for the Watcher in the Water, where they talk about a swish and a plop mm-hmm. in the water, which I fully thought was Bill the Pony planting horse apples. I mean, that's not impossible that it could have been both. Um, but the line, as if a fish had disturbed the still surface of the water, is really doing a lot of creepy foreshadowing. Yeah. It didn't even bother me because I was just thinking, oh, yeah, sure, it's it's a fish in the water. That's something that makes sense. And that was my naivete as a first-time reader, having no idea that there was going to be a creepy monster in there going, eh, sure, there's a fish. That's a normal thing to describe. I'm not going to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Gandalf tells Gimli and Legolas to play nice. <laughs> yes, I did write down that they have a little squabble about who's at fault for ending the friendship between dwarves and elves. And... This obviously is a very long ongoing thing. It's come up in other chapters as well. But I feel like we haven't really gotten any substantive information to figure out 
how or why it happened, just that it, there's beef. Yeah. And uh, I don't really care about the beef. I care about how these two resolve it. Yeah. And specifically, I care about them banging it out. Okay. Tell me more. I would love for them to bang it out. This is not a ship that I had heard of previously, but I've heard of it now and I'm fully on board. So please tell me more. Oh, no. This is one of the biggest ships in the fandom. Really? I'm so glad that we get to introduce this to you now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I just learned from one of our other friends that there's a meme religion about Bomber on the internet, which seems a bit extreme. But, you know, this is a fandom that's had a long time to exist and brew up its own funky little ideas. And I know nothing about it. So, okay. Yeah, enemies the, uh, to lovers, not enemies, rivals to lovers. I like rivals to lovers. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm ready for this gigalus ship to set sail. <laughs> set sail across the flat seas. Yes. Um, we'll get more into that later. Okay. Return of the king. My world has just expanded so much. Now I need to go and reread everything that every interaction they have with the fresh eye i'm going to be on the lookout but i'm sure we'll get more as we go well they're now like interacting more right mm -hmm. and they're going to continue to interact more as the book goes on interact yeah i'm sure well but i wanted to i wanted <laughs> to put that in like i wanted to bring up the ship so we can pay attention because this is a queer reading of lord of the rings yes um and as we've mentioned obviously both dwarves and elves do not have the same gender presentation that you can expect from humans. Mm -hmm. But we are assuming that both of these uh, beings are something roughly approximating human men mm -hmm. based on how they are referred to throughout this. Um, so it is gay. Yes, excellent. And also, I mean, as as queer people, um, when you have two people who do not fit into the gender binary and they are dating, it's it's always gay. It is indeed. Sam has to say goodbye to Bill. Yeah. And the party really doesn't want to break that news to him. They're all dreading it. And Sam is incensed about this. Um, he's like telling Gandalf off, telling him like it's murder to send him off in this. And mm -hmm. Gandalf finally like gets fed up and does a spell over Bill. Now, this is something that I wanted to talk about. Was he actually casting a spell or was he just saying something to make Sam feel better? Because I really think it could have been either. You're referencing the text. I'm referencing the text. I was looking for any sign of magic or anything mentioned about Bill. Um, but I guess we will just have to wait and see as to whether Bill ever reemerges in the text or if we just have to assume that Bill is lost somewhere. Poor Bill. Maybe Fatty Lumpkin comes and finds him and everything is okay. It's, listen, Fatty Lumpkin is the savior of all ponies. Yeah. 
But then they have the door puzzle. Yes. Now, this is one that I was familiar with just from being a person in the world again. Um, and it has that extremely pretty illustration that I've seen a million times of the gates and the tree and the stars and the pretty script. And now I finally know what it is. So that was a very satisfying moment. Yeah, it's a it's first of all a lovely, gorgeous piece of art um, where they tell you what the uh, script is at the top. They say here is written in the Feanorian characters according to the mode of Beleriand, and in Durin Atan Moria, Hedomelon Amino, im Narvi Hain Echant, Celebrimboro o Eregion Tethant Itio Hin. And anybody who actually speaks any of Tolkien's languages, do not come at me. <laughs> they do mention a little bit earlier, they talk about the land of Holland and it being, Holly being the uh, national symbol of the land of Holland, mm -hmm. which I was like, oh, that's fun. Um, how did he come up with that one? And then I realized he has linguistic uh, defenses for it because yeah. of course he does. Holland is a Western word for of Holly, and the Sindarin name for the region Eregion means the land of Holly. Amazing. Um, I love Tolkien. <laughs> Just wonderful world building nerd. But anyway, back to the door. Do you have other sort of door thoughts as they go through this? This is a classic D&D &D door puzzle. Yes. Um, um, of just the party overthinking this so hard. And, you know, Pippin is giving Gandalf a hard time. And Gandalf suggests that he knock on the doors with your head, Peregrine took, which, yeah, I get it. If you're an ancient and powerful wizard trying to solve a puzzle, having a shitty teen yelling stupid ideas at you is not going to be helpful. But, you know, the puzzle is speak friend and enter. And you have to literally say the word friend, which I feel like most people would be familiar with but I enjoyed seeing Gandalf struggle with this and <laughs> I know that I've mentioned already that these are really Gandalf heavy chapters and I'm really paying attention to the things that he's doing but I think it just makes him more interesting as a character to see him struggle with something normal <laughs> that a normal person would struggle with. And oh, I agree. He fails his investigation checks this whole time. And when he finally figures it out, he's so frustrated. And he says, I had only to speak the elvish word for friend and the doors opened. Quite simple. Too simple for a learned lore master in these suspicious days. Those were happier times. Now let us go. And he's basically just in my opinion, trying to save face, going, oh, yeah, this is from the stupid people in the past when they were all trusting and nice, but they're, they weren't as smart and complicated as me, Gandalf. And so I was just too smart, too intellectual for this. This is a child's play. As if he hadn't just spent an incredibly long time not being able to fucking do it. Yeah, and because he, he has a whole other spell that he casts at one point. Anon ed Helen edrohi amen, fenas nogothrim lasto beth lamen, which means elvish gate open for us, doorway of the dwarf folk, listen to the word of my tongue. Which is pretty impressive and magical, but still, still didn't cut it. 
It did not, but they did as they're as they're all struggling. Boromir is a bit of a horror movie protagonist here. Yeah. Um, where he picks up the rock and chucks it into the water. <laughs> and they're all like, the fuck did you do that for? And I love that this trope gets used literally twice in this chapter. Yes. But they get through the door and tentacles erupt from the water. Bill the Pony runs off. And I believe the line typically used here is, I've seen enough hentai to know where this is going. <laughs> I wrote, before we can go in, creepy tentacles start grabbing everyone and not the fun kind. Um, These are not consentacles. This is not a good situation. <laughs> I did look uh, on AO3. Okay. To see if there was uh, any elaboration on this mm -hmm. for anyone. Any transformative works. There are 57 results for The Watcher in the Water on AO3. Amazing. <laughs> Most of them start with uh, the tags rape, non-con, or dubcon. Mm. Yeah, makes sense. So uh, read at your own risk. But yes, there is tentacle porn of this scene on AO3 at the very least, if not somewhere else as well. Everybody's so creative. <laughs> Rule 34. <laughs> the Phantom Apprentice's rules of fantasy and also everywhere <laughs> else's rules of fantasy. Rules of someone else's fantasies. Mm, indeed. There was a line here. Its fingered end had hold of Frodo's foot. And I feel like, you know, I think this, I should be interpreting this as just like, it's the end of the tentacle that's like kind of like a finger. Mm -hmm. But I interpreted this as like, the tentacle has fingers. Mm. And that made it so much worse. Yeah, no, I don't like it. A little wet, <laughs> it's gross. It's a horrific image. Yeah. I had to it's... inflict that on all of you. So thank you, question mark, for that. You're welcome. Um, but we do get another moment of Sam being resistant to evil forces, uncannily so, when... Okay, yeah, so literally right after that line, its fingered end had hold of Frodo's foot and was dragging him into the water. Sam on his knees was now slashing at it with a knife. So slant... Slam. <laughs> Slam. Slam poetry. <laughs> Sam gets into the action. And he is just fully going for it, attacking this thing with a knife. And Gandalf basically shouts at everyone to leave because it's been mildly incapacitated by Sam's attack. And Gandalf shouting, rousing them from the horror that seemed to have rooted all but Sam to the ground where they stood. He drove them forward. And so this is another instance of Sam being curiously resistant to this force that is gripping everyone else. And we also had something to just go back a little bit to Bill that I wanted to talk about, but then I forgot and got sidetracked. That was another example of him breaking the social contract in which he has to be the agreeable servant who does what he's told because he really wanted to stand up for Bill. This was a creature that he cares a lot about and has put a lot of effort into caring for and making sure that it feels safe and happy and doing well in their company. And then he's being told that he just has to give Bill up without a fight. Obviously 
there's no way to bring Bill on the journey. This was kind of an inevitable thing, but he's still willing to step to Gandalf and step to the rest of the party and stick up for what he believes in. And so we have that moment of him asserting himself with the party and then asserting himself with this big scary being. And that just that conviction of knowing what he cares about and knowing what he thinks is right, I think is the connecting thread. I like that a lot. Thank you. And I mean, we don't have a hundred percent success, not success rate, but that's not applicable in 100% of the situations where Sam seems unaffected by evil things, but it does seem to be a theme, um, which maybe is connected to the magic of friendship that I sincerely believe is going to be part of part of the victory in this story. But I really like Sam having a backbone and being a complicated character, even when he knows that you know, with Bill, he's going to have to give Bill up. He knows that he's not going to win in that situation, but he's still going to try and still being willing to put himself out there and do the right thing. You know, he's not always self-sacrificing just for the benefit of the people around him. He will sacrifice for whatever he truly believes to be worth it. Yeah, I'm going to keep an eye on that. And I'm going to let you keep an eye on, on Sam specifically for that. You're making a face. A, a mischievous, Sam, mischievous Sam, Sam grin. Sam Sam But anyway, the company takes a short rest before they continue on their way. These chapters just really feel like a, a bit of a D&D dungeon crawl. Yeah, when they say, let us sit and rest and have something to eat here on the landing since we can't find a dining room. The sass, I think that was probably, it was one of the hobbits. It was either Sam or Frodo. I didn't write down who said it. But yeah, now that, they're, now that they're somewhere relatively safe, Got to take a short rest. Got to roll those hit dice. They had a foe that they definitely fled from, knowing that that would have led to a TPK. But anyway, they they move on. Aragorn references the cats of Queen Baruthiel, mm-hmm. um, which was not a story that I was familiar with. Um, so I went ahead and looked it up, and Queen Baruthiel was a queen of Gondor in the first millennium of the third age. And she was sort of notoriously cruel, but kept a lot of cats. Mm-hmm. I guess that's, that's another one of those like kennings that Tolkien has put into his story that the characters within the story understand, but we as readers do not. Yeah. And so we are just more miserable trekking through the dark with no light. Everyone's spirits are really low. But we do learn that Frodo can see a little bit better in the dark now after his injury. And he generally seems more attuned to evil things, which he is mm-hmm. not happy about. He is not enjoying this. But no, all of the ominous things that are creeping about in the caves are really present to him. And I thought that was an interesting long-term consequence of having the blade in him for so long because he was kind of halfway into the ring wraith's world and now he can still sort of perceive a little bit of it. Yeah, it's interesting that the ring wraith's world is not just that of the ring, it's that of evil, like as a category. Yeah, and being able to see 
what's in the darkness is not a good thing. It's not a comforting thing. And this is maybe where we diverge from D&D a little bit in that everyone, as soon as they enter any dark room, goes, I have dark vision, I have dark vision, especially if you're me, because my character has extra super special dark vision that's better than everyone else's. And I have the disease where I constantly have to bring it up because it's fun. But normally the dark vision is a good thing because we feel safe, we can see things, we see the types of things that we expect to see. We can see the uneven floors and corners and rocks and traps and stuff. But what Frodo is perceiving, he really doesn't want to be seeing. And he's sort of losing the, I'm trying to think of a way to phrase it, but there's a certain protectiveness, you know, where the dark can hide things from us that we don't want to know about. And Mm -hmm. it's easier to move through a dark cave when you're not hyper aware of every single thing in there that has ill will towards you. But his ability to physically see more and to perceive more is actually making this far more difficult than it would be for someone else in the party. Interesting. Interesting. That's some really good insight. I like that. I should also enjoy the callback where Sam goes, rope i knew if i i knew i'd want it if i hadn't got it so true but then they come to sort of their first space for a long rest and there's a big hole in the floor that pippin is drawn to junji ito style (laughs) um (laughs) that was that was now reading this as an adult um the first thing i thought i thought about when and said, Pippin felt curiously attracted by the well. I was like, is it shaped like him? Is it his hole that he needs to go into? Oh, um, yeah. The Enigma of Amagara Fault. Yeah, it's like the mountain with everybody has their hole, and then you get, like, squeezed into it. Yeah. Yeah, that's – I reread that this afternoon, and, oh, it's still just as terrifying. Yeah. That makes me think of – um there's we probably have a similar phrase for it in english but specifically when i was learning french l'appel du vide uh, the call of the void which is that feeling that you get when you stand at the edge of like especially when i'm hiking and i'm really high up and i see like a really sharp drop there's that like little tiny voice that is not an intrusive thought but a cousin of an intrusive thought that's like what if what if i just jumped down there there's something about these big drops big holes big caverns that just kind of sparks your imagination in this really morbid way well and that's like why i like playing games like assassin's creed or um like mass effect andromeda where you come to these cliffs and you can in fact jump off and live Mm -hmm. um because it settles that little that little call yeah i like watching videos of people who have a body cam on and they're like doing parkour and there's a robot voice reading an am i the asshole post in the background sort of layers of ipad kid overstimulation but it just is really surreal to me to think that anyone could do that because i never will that that shit terrifies me i've had enough injuries that i'm not gonna do any high risk activity like that but Oh, I've watched so many like GoPro videos of people in like wingsuits base diving mm-hmm. or base jumping. 
It's terrifying, but so cool. Yeah. To the um, people who live after doing those things who think to take videos, thank you. Yes. But Pippin throws a rock down into the well. Where we've seen what this does before. Yeah. And Gandalf gets really pissed at him. And at first I was thinking that Pippin didn't really do anything wrong and Gandalf should just cut him a break. But we did just have that incident of throwing rocks into the water, awakening a giant, terrible monster. So I kind of think it makes sense to reprimand Pippin for this one. But again, he's just being, he's just being a curious kid. Anyone would, even an adult, you'd kind of want to throw a rock down to just see how deep it is and figure out what's at the bottom of the hole. You know, there's, we have to learn caution on this adventure, but it's still hurts to see Pippin being punished for his natural curiosity. And I think that's just a part of the growing up that he's going to have to do on this journey is learning Mm -hmm. some more of that caution, but it's still a bummer. Yeah. Then of course, the other consequence of this action is the tapping, the Tom tap, tap, Tom, tap, Tom, Tom, tap, 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 Tom. They're like, Oh, that's bad. (laughs) Yeah, there's a little spark of, oh, maybe it's our friend. Maybe they're doing some real good smithing down there and we can hear them from all the way up here. Wouldn't that be great? And definitely no, that's not what's happening at all. Definitely not our friends. No, 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 no. Uh, But they managed to get their long rest Mm -hmm. somehow. Um, And they move on and they get a little bit of history and Mordor, a little bit of a a dwarf song that Gimli sings for them. Um, and they talk about Mithril. Yes, we get some lore about that. We learn that dwarves have a secret name for it, which is very fun. We did have earlier uh, that dwarves have a whole secret language that they don't teach anyone. Oh, that had just gone right over my head, but I love that. Yeah. Um, so they have, you know, the dwarven tongue that people seem to know, but I guess they have a whole other language as well. But Frodo learns that he has Vicuña woven Kevlar. <laughs> <laughs> just that's that's what he's wearing as his undershirt. Yeah, that it is just the most obscenely valuable thing that could possibly have been that a person could possibly own that has been left to him. Um, I wonder if I can find what he equates it to. He'd been walking around with the price of the Shire under his jacket. Yes. There is a, um, the thing it made me think of is there's a monster fucker book that we've, I think both read. Did you read the third one? The, with the storm dragon? Yes. Yes. So it has that fantastic trope that I love so much where there is some kind of immortal being who has this fabulous wealth and they are totally out of touch with what money means to normal mortals. And so they get out an amount of money that's just obscene. You know, it'll be a hundred gold pieces to go, you know, is this enough to buy a loaf of bread? And you go, oh yeah, bitch. Um, But the phrase that this girl uses when she's talking about the little pouch that her new magical dragon husband is filling up for their journey says that's enough to bitch slap the king of kanamo and 
It was such an evocative <laughs> phrase. So thinking about Frodo shirt, I'm like, yeah, it's enough to bitch slap the king of Kanama. <laughs> that's my new go-to metric for something that's worth a lot of money. Oh, that's incredible. We did just have a similar situation in our D&D game this week. Um, oh, yeah. Where we encountered your character's family who has no financial resources. Uh, and all of our characters who you know, as high level adventurers are wont to do are now swimming in gold. Yeah. Gold has lost meaning to us. We, we're not really great business owners as, at the inn that we run, but everyone also, gets what they I think need. All of us decided we didn't want to do math anymore. <laughs> we don't want to do math. And also we're anti-capitalists. So, you know, we're going to make sure that everyone's needs are met one way or another. Mm -hmm. And we'll use our profits to build beautiful bathhouses for the use of the community instead of hoarding piles of gold coins but that's just the kind of people we are anyway then it gets very sad it gets because very we do sad. find out what happened to our friends and because we find balan's tomb balan's son of fundin here is written in the tongues of men and dwarves balan's son of fundin lord of moria he is dead then, said Frodo. I feared it was so. Gimli cast his hood over his face. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah. Um, but Frodo, when the fuck did you fear it was so? This is the first we're hearing of it. Yeah. Yeah, you didn't have any specific reason to think that everyone had died. You didn't know these people. This is news. This was news to you a couple days ago that they were even down here. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't think he's expressed any reservations about Balan's presence in Moria. Mm -hmm. He might have, and I could just be totally misremembering. It has been like a month since we read the previous chapters. Chapter, um, I have it marked as chapter five of book two, The Bridge of Khazad-dûm, is super short. It's the shortest chapter we have in the book. Yeah. So far. There's a lot it's that happens. Pages. But oh, it is there's a shit ton that happens, but I also still only have a half page of notes. And a lot of it is me talking about dwarvish mortuary practices, which we'll get to in a moment. Yes, I would I would love to talk about their mortuary practices because they do spend more time at Balance Tomb trying to basically figure out what happened. And we established pretty early on when they enter the mines that it has all been looted. There's no evidence of the massive wealth that drew people here. And the area around his tomb has obviously been looted. But there is a book with some information that is conveniently both stabbed and burned. So we just get a little bit of cheese of truth style piecing together words trying to figure out what happened. But we Magical Mad Libs. Exactly. Uh, we confirm that he definitely was the Lord of Moria for the five years that he lived. Um, after acquiring that title and which orcs, that's rough yeah we also learned from that book that orcs are a huge problem and that the dwarves were trapped in the mine and couldn't get out well and oin got taken by the watcher in the water mm -hmm. um so that's another member of thorin's company down but yeah they do mention from the log book uh, I, I have here gandalf finds the captain's log mm-hmm um, star dates and all, <laughs> but they have that 
Balin has set up a seat in the chamber of Marzable, which is the chamber of records. And Gimli says, I guess that is where we now stand. So I want to talk about dwarven mortuary practices. Please do. I would love that. Because they have like a large sarcophagus for Balin just in the middle of the chamber of records, right? It's not described as being, you know, in any sort of like recessed space. It's straight up in the middle of the room. It's, you know, a single oblong block about two feet high upon which was laid a great slab of white stone. And Frodo says it looks like a tomb. So I have questions about whether or not, you know, is this a mortuary practice that was common among the dwarves? They're using interment. They're using sarcophagi, so like chamber burials of a sort. But was this common to have your group leaders, the important people, laid to rest sort of out in the open like this? Uh, was it common to have them uh, rest from the places that they governed, like from the very seats that they governed? Was the throne of the king under the mountain built atop the sarcophagi of his forefathers? Which is kind of interesting. I know that the dwarves are people of stone, and so it sort of makes sense that like they are interred within stone. You know, a little from remember that you are dust and to dust you shall return. Yeah. Type type shit. You know, you come from the stone to the stone you shall be re uh to the stone you shall be returned eventually. I had the interesting thought of since the dwarves live their entire lives underground. I think it would have been really interesting culturally for the dwarves to take on something like sky burial. Interesting. Yeah. Um, placing their dead outside um, with like a form of elemental exposure mm -hmm. um, for disposal because, you know, those spaces on the top of mountains um, are, foreign to them they're the opposite of where they live their lives and also just thinking about the constant expansion underground you're going to run out of places to bury people because you're not going to put them deep down underground because there might be more good stuff underground you're going to want to mine and check that out so i don't feel like it makes sense to keep putting your bodies deeper and deeper because that's space that they're using. It's like you said, that space that they're living in. Well, but then if we think that the interment of Balin sort of in the center of, of the place that he was ruling from is a common feature of dwarves, perhaps, uh, you know, dwarvish families inter their dead within the walls of their home. There are human cultures in our world today that do that. Mm -hmm. um, the dead become a part of the home itself. It's, you know, was there a form of ancestor worship among the dwarves? We can learn so much about how a culture treats its dead. And I'm really interested to know whether this was uh, something common among the dwarves, whether this is just common for leaders so that like, leaders can continue being venerated in this public space? Is this something that is, uh, that only occurred because they knew that they were going to be overrun? And so they placed Balin in sort of a final place of honor, knowing that this room was going to become all of their tomb. 
Mm. Yeah, that's way darker than what I was thinking, which is just, you know, they're retaking Moria. They're building this new empire for themselves. Maybe they're going to start a new burial practice. Maybe this is an entirely new thing that they're trying out that was significant to Balin specifically that he wanted. But the this will become all of our tomb makes a lot of sense and is way sadder. Yeah, or is this some, you know, like Tomb of the Unknown Soldier type stuff where, like, at the War Memorial you have this, you know, tomb not necessarily where someone is buried directly, like, in the center of things, but symbolically, more or less, someone is buried there where Balin being the the Lord who returned to Moria to reclaim it is buried specifically in the chamber of records because that marks his return to Moria. That marks the dwarves return to Moria. And so him being the first Lord, that was going to be something specific to Balin. Yeah. We won't know this. We'll never know, but I think it's fun to think about. I think it's fun to think about too. And now my mind is still spinning of, well, maybe they'd be big, a big cremation culture because they have their forges, they have their fires that are very important to them. So something about, you know, becoming one with the fire, that could be interesting. I don't know. There's lots of options. Well, and hammering ashes into artifacts or into um, compressing them into jewels. That would be so amazing. Yeah, they could be, you know, like when you get your ashes made into a diamond, they could totally have some kind of technology for that. And then you know, you could have jewelry that is made out of the jewels of the previous rulers that then the new ruler puts on. Or if you have a smaller version of that in your family, you could have some kind of family thing. Um, there, there's options that, like you said, we'll never know, but it's really fun to think about. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to keep some of those headcanons in my brain now. Yeah. And that's, that's maybe good they'll... future world building fodder. It certainly is. Um, But we have, from the captain's log, we have the famous lines um, from the last page. We cannot get out. We cannot get out. They have taken the bridge in the second hall. Frar and Loni and Nali fell there. Then there are four lines smeared so that I could only read, went five days ago. The last lines run, the pool is up to the wall at Westgate. The watcher in the water took oin. We cannot get out. The end comes. And then drums, drums in the deep. I wonder what that means. The last thing written is in this trailing scrawl of elf letters. They are coming. Chills. Um, and this is when it turns from a D&D dungeon crawl to a, a piece of a horror film. Mm-hmm where you are seeing evidence of, you know, this last stand and knowing, ah, we're fucked. Yep. (laughs) So a sudden dread and a horror of the chamber fell on the company. I really love on the next page, Legolas says, they are coming, uh, which is a nice parallel to they are coming being written specifically in the trailing scrawl of elf letters. Mm Mm-hmm. And then Gimli following that up with, we cannot get out. This is a connection. This is hot, fresh neurons firing together in my brain. I feel like it's been a minute since we've talked about Tolkien's military experience directly informing Mm -hmm. his writing. But 
I am sure that this is an experience that he has had or has known people who have had and has witnessed, you know, having to face that you are stuck in a situation that you are not going to get out of. Um, There's overwhelming odds coming at you. Yeah. We're feeling like there's overwhelming odds coming at you and hoping for a miracle that will get you out of it. Or, you know, being on the other side and knowing that you are inflicting that on someone else. And, you know, that must have been a very emotional thing to write. Yeah. But they they have a brief uh, exchange of arms with people or with the enemy. I did have one piece where the the drums are doom, boom, doom, boom. And I just thought that's just tap Tom up close. Interesting. The doom um, has the same sort of closure on the sound to my mind as the tap does. And the boom is more of a rolling open sound where the tom also is a rolling open sound. But it's, it's sort of a longer sound uh, for the doom boom because it's closer to you and the tap tom is further off. I love that. That's really cool. That's my thought process anyway, but also the tap tom was explicitly stated to be a hammer on the doom boom or drums in the deep. True. Uh, They can still be related. They can be, and I will choose to believe that they are. We start hearing about, with the drums, there's the great voice Mm -hmm. uh, coming from the deep, which is terrifying. Yeah. Voices in the dark. And right before the combat actually starts, we have this realization that the dwarves are trapped. Now we are trapped. We can't get out. And coming back to Gandalf, he's not necessarily lost in thought, but he's definitely thinking out loud, just trying to puzzle through what their options are. Meanwhile, Aragorn immediately starts shouting orders. And I enjoyed that contrast between them of, you know, Aragorn just directly taking action um, because that's what he's used to being a ranger making quick decisions getting into a fight and Gandalf is more of the intellectual thinky planny wizard um and they do eventually I think Aragorn wants to bar the doors and Gandalf says don't bar the doors that's a bad idea then they figured out between the two of them Aragorn's a military commander at in the end he's a warrior and Gandalf has adopted the ability to be a warrior over time out of necessity. He is first and foremost an advisor and a wizard. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I, I really like that, that contrast, that analysis that you've, that you put there. Thank you. Um, Gandalf also points out, he refers to them as orcs um, and that some of them were very large black orcs of Mordor. So we have, discussed that there are different sorts of goblins and orcs before, but now we're getting direct evidence and a discussion that there, that these orcs here are now definitely, certainly directly allied with Sauron. Mm -hmm. And then we get, you know, we're, we're in initiative now, more or less. Yes. Um, You know, there's skill challenges happening and Gandalf uses some high-level magic to get them out of some scraps with with orcs. Frodo has Um, his first moment of really direct combat. There's a mysterious foot, and I was not 100% sure what the foot 
was connected to what kind of creature foot it was, but there was a toeless foot that was involved that gets attacked. And his first blood, his first um, stab with that is with Sting, which was wonderful because, I mean, obviously Sting is his only option. He doesn't have a different sword, but still, it's still the same sword being used for that same first transformative moment. Yeah, which I, I like a lot, but it's I think it's a cave troll specifically because mm-hmm. um, they mentioned the cave trolls being a part of the assault. Yeah, and not having toes, apparently. Apparently not, uh, but I guess, well, the Watcher in the Water has fingers on its tentacles, mm. so that's where the extra digits went. <laughs> Love conservation of extremities, I guess. Whoa. <laughs> Um, and so I did... uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm now thinking about the tentacle with with troll toes, just like stuck on it. Oh, you're gonna have some interesting dreams tonight. Can I not? Can I opt out? No, sorry. There's no one subscribe. But I did have another thing, which is that Aragorn makes a point of saying, in the midst of all this combat, after Frodo gets his strike, the Hobbit's bite is deep. You have a good blade, Frodo, son of Drogo. Which he just takes a little minute to encourage his soldier to tell Frodo that he's doing a good job, which I love. He didn't have to do. They could have just focused on the battle. But I like that he got that little moment of recognition. And it also shows that Aragorn is just a good leader. He's a good commander. He's aware of what everybody's doing. And he's also thinking about how they might be feeling and thinking about the fact that this is probably Frodo's first experience with real combat and just taking a moment to encourage him probably while slashing the head or other limb off of an orc to go be absorbed onto the watcher in the water later, I guess, but. (laughs) Well, then uh, they, they keep running and finally it's revealed what that dark voice was. A Balrog. Yeah. So what the fuck is it? It's bad. It has a whip, apparently, but I was not... And a flaming sword. Yeah, I was not clear on what type of creature I was supposed to be envisioning. Well, the the descriptions of it, you know, like a great shadow in the middle of which was a dark form of man shape, maybe, yet greater. Its streaming mane kindled and blazed behind it, and it seems to have... Uh, shadowy forms like wings on it. Okay. Right. They are, so Balrogs are clearly known to Legolas and Gandalf, right? Mm -hmm. In the Balrog is their name in Sindarin, uh, which means demon of might, more or less. And in Quenya, um, they're referred to as Valarukar, which means roughly the same thing, demon of power. They are of roughly the same type of being as uh, Gandalf. Oh, but interesting. evil. Damn. Um, Glorfindel fought and killed a, Bal- a Balrog. And that was ultimately, I believe, what caused his first death. Yeah, so this is a truly epic creature. Yes, this is... Um, we are meant to understand that this is really, really bad mm-hmm. for everyone, particularly when when Gandalf goes, and I'm already weary, right? 
Mm-hmm. He's already used so many of his spell slots. Yeah, he's he's running low. He's got just cantrips left. Yeah. So the Balrogs are something to be feared. And this one specifically has no other name given to us other than Durin's Bane. Mm-hmm. So we're supposed to understand that this Balrog killed the father of the dwarves in addition to uh, causing the downfall of Moria. Mm-hmm. Right? So we have them all going, well, fuck, and fleeing across this bridge. Boromir blows his horn, and then we have not a great description of the Balrog, but we have, let's see, the Balrog reached the bridge. His enemy halted again, facing him, and the shadow about it reached it reached out like two vast wings. Fire came from its nostrils. And Gandalf stands facing this creature. And do you want to talk about this scene, Sam, or do you want me to? Um, let's see. Let me pull up the specifics of it. Because, I mean, we get two very iconic lines in these couple of pages. The first is one of those ones that's a little bit maybe different in the movie than in the book. Because I think everyone or most people are familiar with the you shall not pass as a meme. But in this one, it's you cannot pass. So it's phrased differently. But I assume this is that same moment. This is that same moment. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and Gandalf in the movie will say the words you cannot pass, but you shall not pass are the the really iconic lines from the movie itself. Maybe shall just um, feels more, I don't know, memeable. I don't know. Archaic, I guess. Yeah. Pseudo archaic. The form of the Balrog seems mutable. Almost. It doesn't seem fully set. It is a creature of shadow because, you know, after after Gandalf kind of stands up there and tells it, you cannot pass. Um, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Anor. You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you, flame of Odun. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. Odun is another uh, name for Mordor. Mm-hmm. So again, we're we're getting confirmation that uh, these beings are directly aligned with Sauron, yeah. both the orcs and the Balrog. Um, but it says the fire in it seemed to die, but the darkness grew. Um, it stepped forward slowly onto the bridge, and suddenly it drew itself up to a great height, and its wings were spread from wall to wall. But still, Gandalf could be seen glimmering in the gloom. He seemed small, and altogether alone, gray and bent like a wizened tree before the onset of a storm. And that is when uh, I think those lines specifically are when I had the sense that Gandalf was not making it out of this. I don't know if I believe that he's really dead forever, though. I mean, we're a little bit ahead of ourselves because he's going to fall down into the giant chasm and then we are meant to believe that he dies. But there's so much more. There's two more books and there's still some more of this book. I I am not buying that he's gone forever. I'm simply not. Okay. We're going to make that a capital P prediction for Sam. Yes. Because there's just no way. There's so much more book. He's such a main character. We have spent so much time dwelling on him and he's so iconic. 
Yeah, no, um, I don't. I don't believe with our I don't one other it. character disappearance from this uh, episode. Uh, how do you feel about Bill and Bill the Pony's eventual return, or is he dead? I mean, Bill, as great as he is, is not really central to the plot in the same way that Gandalf is. But I, I like to think he's probably fine. I think what happens to Bill really depends on whether or not what Gandalf said was an actual spell. But we have set a precedent for horses escaping and being found and being okay in this book. So I would like to believe that Bill deserves a long and happy life. But I'm not really as invested in his fate. Fair enough. Well, regardless of whether or not Gandalf returns, um, which I will say nothing about whether that is the case or not. For the moment, Aragorn and Boromir run out to help him and Gandalf destroys the bridge, sending him and the Balrog down into the chasm. Mm -hmm. um, and before he falls down, he manages to turn to the party hanging from the bridge and say the other iconic line. You can have this one. Fly, you fools. He cried and was gone. Um, and there's a whole other page after that. But frankly, like that's the end of the chapter to me. Yeah, that's the um, end of the action. That is, they leave, um, they run out past a last group of guards at the gate. And then, you know, grief at last wholly overcame them and they wept long. Some, some standing and silent, some cast upon the ground. Doom doom the drum beats faded so that's our first party death um, yeah we've talked about upping the stakes uh as we go on through this book and every single chapter ups the stakes higher the stakes are high <laughs> so that's the end of the section that we're going through today sammy got anything else for for these two chapters yeah i think i've got a couple of little things that we just kind of breezed past, but I wanted to circle back to. So I think yes. that last line about grief overcoming them, this is a good example of the really economical use of language in this chapter and how short it is. Because when I first read it, it didn't really hit me how they were processing Gandalf's death. I mean, I got that they were running away and that they had the danger fully impressed upon them and they're out of the mines and they are just booking it for as long as they can possibly go. But some cast upon the ground. That is a very intense display of grief. And mm -hmm. I think especially for these characters who for human purposes were reading mostly kind of as men, um, that's just, that's a really intense display of emotion. That's really vulnerable. And that's also, you know, correlating or coinciding with them stopping running away. It's like we are, the only thing that matters to us is getting as far away from this fucking place as possible. And then we are willing to stop this life and death uh, escape to just lay on the ground and weep about what happened. Right. Um, but you can easily glide over that line if you're not really paying attention to it because it's 
one sentence and then it moves on. And then I guess kind of just going back in reverse order, um, the stuff that Gandalf says to the Balrog about being a servant of the secret flame, whatever that means. If I hadn't known that it was some kind of roughly analogous evil creature to what Gandalf is, to me, that's my sign that this thing has pretty tremendous intelligence. This isn't some mindless evil thing that just eats people who go into the caves. It knows what the secret flame is, and that's enough of a threat to make it back off a little bit. And there's some kind of shared cultural understanding that Gandalf and the Balrog have. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's Gandalf's boast of who he is. Uh, again, these, they're not really kennings, but kenning is the best word that I'm going to come up with in this moment. These descriptors um, that the audience isn't really meant to understand, but we're meant to take kind of at face value uh, um as referring to some kind of great power. Yeah, like you said, the, the Balrog definitely understands what he, what he is saying. And Gandalf knows that using that specific phrase, that those words will have power. Mm -hmm. We've talked about names having power. And I think this is, this is uh, an extension of that. Yeah. And then my last thing, continuing in our reverse chronological order was right after that first scrap with the with the cave trolls and orcs um everyone's praising Frodo for doing a good job because he did do a good job and he should be celebrated and then we have you take after Bilbo said Gandalf there is more about you than meets the eye as I said of him long ago Frodo wondered if the remark meant more than it said and first of all you just have the parallel you have Frodo following in Bilbo's footsteps, which is wonderful, and we're getting a lot of that this chapter. But specifically, the Frodo wondered if the remark meant more than it said. I didn't understand what that is supposed to mean or imply. I don't know if you had any insight on that. I think specifically, like, when Gandalf made the remark in The Hobbit, he was referring to the ring. There's more of you than meets the eye. There's more to you than meets the eye. He was referring to the ring specifically. And here I wonder if he's referring to, you know, I guess Frodo's courage or resilience or to the Vicuña woven Kevlar. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. Um, I don't really have anything more on that or for the chapters, but. Yeah. So I guess that's sort of a, Cheek, because at first I was confused because he's saying there's more about you than meets the eye. So obviously you have hidden depths or whatever. And then wondering if the remark meant more than it said. That's such an open-ended thing to say. What more could it possibly mean? There isn't more to that because you've already encompassed all the more in the original phrase. But I think it's actually, like you said, serving more as a cheeky acknowledgement that Gandalf is aware of whatever it is that Frodo has going on. If it's the ring, if it's the mithril armor, if it's just his innate hobbity goodness, friendship powers, whatever that is, Gandalf knows about it, even if Frodo hasn't explicitly told him. 
And so yeah. I think that's more what that's serving. That makes sense. If that's all we've got for the chapters, um, I'll take us out. Hell yeah. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Um, we're so happy to have you here with us on this journey. And hopefully you will stick with us as we continue to make our way through uh, the rest of Fellowship. There's only a few more chapters left in Fellowship. And then we'll move on to the Two Towers and Return of the King eventually. So if you'd like to come along with us on uh, this journey, you can do that. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate us, leave us a review. Uh, it really helps other folks find the podcast. Particularly if you leave us a five-star rating, please and thank you. We'd really appreciate that if you like what you're hearing. Talk us up to your friends. Um, and you can also, for updates on the podcast, uh, for bad jokes, images of what we're cooking, and uh, updates on what chapters we're going to be covering next on the next episode, you can follow us on our social media at fanapppod on Instagram, TikTok, and X. We hope you will join us next time to discuss some subset of the next chapters that take place in Lothlorien. It can only go so, up from here, right? Right? For a little bit. Sure, I'll take it. <laughs> we'll see you all next time. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. The Phantom Apprentice is produced and edited by Rin and Sam. Our music was composed and performed by James, and our art is by Casey Turgeon. This podcast is created for non-commercial entertainment purposes, and the opinions expressed therein are our own and are not reflective of the opinions of any other person or organization. The content discussed is the property of the Tolkien estate and is used here under fair use. Thank you.